Hello and welcome to everybody. Uh, welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar. I'm Ian Welsh and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. And today we're going to be talking about how blue carbon can deliver at scale. As the world's greatest carbon sink, the ocean and its coastal ecosystems are, of course, an essential part of the solution to the climate emergency. Blue carbon projects protect and restore marine ecosystems, such as tidal marshes, seagrasses and mangroves, which can sequester up to 10 times as much carbon as a land-based forest. So blue carbon clearly has significant potential, but as ever, the devil is in the detail of how projects get off the ground. Ongoing funding, pricing of carbon, and the rigour in accounting for verified emissions reductions and carbon credits, and many, many other factors. So to help unpack these and everything else, blue carbon, I'm delighted to have joining me Dr. Whitney Johnson from Salesforce. We have Ben Shelk from the Ocean Foundation, Dr. Jennifer Howard from Conservation International and Liz Guinnessy from Vera. So welcome to you all. And many thanks to Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson uh, for convening this panel and to B and her colleague Diana Kim for tech hosting today. I'll turn to our panel very shortly, but we do want to hear from you all. So please do be thinking about uh, your points and questions that you'd like me to put to our panel and write them into the Q&A box on your screen. You can, of course, like others' questions, and the more likes a question gets, the greater the chances are that I will put it to the panel. Blue Carbon is a new area for Innovation Forum and one that we are keen to explore further. If you uh, or your organisation is interested in taking the Blue Carbon discussion further, we're looking for partners in 2023 to help host discussions like this uh, around Blue Carbon and other similar topics. So please get in touch with any of the Innovation Forum team if this is of interest. Okay, plug over. Uh, let's get started. Liz, uh, welcome. Give us a couple of sentences of context setting introduction to Vera, please. Uh, and then perhaps you can set the context for us on the state of the blue carbon market, and in particular, the importance of a rigorous approach to methodology. Liz. Yeah, happy to. Um, first, I would just like to thank everybody for being here today. It's great to see so much interest in blue carbon. Um, I'll start with a little bit of background on Vera. Vera is an environmental nonprofit. We are based in Washington, D.C., but we have staff all over the world. And the main thing that we do is develop and manage standards that track progress towards achieving different climate mitigation and sustainable development goals. The Verified Carbon Standard, or the VCS, is our flagship program, and it's the world's largest voluntary greenhouse gas program. Essentially, the VCS ensures the credibility of emission reductions or removals from projects by laying out different rules and requirements that all projects need to follow to be certified. So this includes the standard itself, which is basically an underlying set of rules. We also have a set of accounting methodologies, which cross different sectors. Uh, these methodologies set out steps to quantify emission reductions or removals, and they also include steps like how to demonstrate additionality or that the project wouldn't have occurred in the absence of that carbon finance. The VCS has a system of independent auditing where any project is assessed by an independent third party known as a validation and verification body or a VVB. And lastly, the VCS has a registry system, which is basically a central storehouse of data on all VCS projects. And it also tracks the generation of a verified carbon unit, which is our terminology for a carbon credit, essentially. And so in addition to the VCS, I do want to mention that we also have a climate community and biodiversity standard, which certifies benefits beyond carbon. So if your project has livelihood benefits or biodiversity benefits, you can use the CCB. 
And in addition to that, we have a Sustainable Development Verified Impact Standard, or SD-VISTA, since it's a bit of a mouthful, and that tracks progress towards achieving different sustainable development goals, or SDGs. And I mentioned these two other standards because most blue carbon projects offer additional benefits beyond carbon. You can use these standards as standalone certifications, or you could combine them with the VCS project and then demonstrate to the market that this project has these other co-benefits in a fashion that is verified, again, by this third party. And so Ian's question on state of the blue carbon markets, you know, as Ian said, we all know that blue carbon is incredibly important to achieving our climate mitigation goals. Um, in particular, car blue carbon ecosystems store significant amounts of carbon in the below ground soil pool. And if left undisturbed, that carbon can stay there for thousands of years. So incredible opportunity there. But while blue carbon has been shown to have this really significant climate mitigation potential, it took time for the data to really coalesce to the point that we're at today. Currently at Vera, we have methodologies that can credit the conservation and the restoration of coastal blue carbon ecosystems. So I'm referring to tidal marshes, mangroves, and seagrass meadows. And similar to the methodologies, it's also taken a while for projects really to get up and running, but we are seeing that the pipeline of blue carbon projects at Vera is growing quite rapidly. Um, I want to mention that last year, Vera started a Seascape Carbon Initiative, which Jen Howard is actually also part of. And this initiative is considering emerging blue carbon opportunities. So we're looking at things like seaweed farming, seaweed conservation, restoration, seabed management, um, and the idea of this initiative is that we can identify and prioritize knowledge gaps that exist to be able to create methodologies to credit these activities. But I do want to mention that we currently do not have any methodologies that can credit these marine carbon activities. And then lastly, on the topic of methodologies, I do just want to go through our process to actually develop a methodology within Vera. Essentially, we first receive a concept note, which has some sort of activity that is being promoted. We assess the climate mitigation potential and then the rigor of the science backing that concept. If we think that it seems to be up to snuff, then we move that concept note into the methodology development process, which requires going through a public consultation period where any external stakeholder can submit comments or really say anything they have to say about that proposed methodology. There's a revision, and then that methodology moves on to be audited by one of these VVBs or validation verification bodies. There's another revision process. And so through this entire process and iteration, we essentially get those methodologies to a point where really all experts agree upon what is being done within that methodology. If they don't get to that point, then that methodology is not approved or it's put on hold. And so I really just want to emphasize that it's important that projects use a rigorous and robust accounting methodology, which is ideally backed by standard, because otherwise it's really difficult to ascertain the true climate impact of what that credit that you're purchasing is actually doing. I'll leave it at that. I think I answered all of your questions, Ian. Sure. No, thank you very much. The very useful background to all of that. Um, I wondered, you talked about... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. You, wondered, you talked about when you were bringing together methodologies and uh, um, concept notes, and then checking that it all works. What are the sort of things that typically were got wrong at that stage? What are the kind of key things that are are you know that would that wouldn't prevent a methodology from getting going to the next stage? 
Yeah, I think so. We have a methodology development and review process, which is available on our website, which I would encourage anyone who might be interested in learning more to look at. But I think some of the key factors that would prevent a methodology from moving forward have to do with the science that's backing it and ensuring that it's rigorous, that it's robust, it's based on peer-reviewed scientific literature, um, the workability of the methodology in terms of being able to translate that science to application on the ground is also important. And that's something that that VVB assessment helps with because the VVB is coming in with the perspective of actually developing a project using the methodology. So you need to be able to cross from you know, what the scientists think you need to do to the actual reality of the on-the-ground implementation. And of course, there's other considerations like having a robust demonstration of additionality, being able to ascertain the permanence of the carbon that's stored by the activity that's being promoted by the methodology and different factors like that. But I would say that, especially in the blue carbon space, one of the biggest sticking points is making sure that there's rigorous science backing the activity. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Jane, um, Let's uh, let me bring you in now. Um, remind us in a couple of sentences, please, what Conservation International does. And then I, I know that you've worked on uh, blue carbon projects. Um, perhaps you can reflect on how you've set these up and the lessons you've learned that will help and are helping you frame your current and future approach. Jen. Sure. Hi, thank you very much for the invitation to speak today. So to start off, Conservation International is a conservation group that works internationally. We have about 33 offices all around the world. Um, and what we really focus on is how do we tackle the climate crisis along with the biodiversity crisis and doing all of that such that people around the world can thrive. And so we really look at it as a human-centered conservation approach, which um, we feel like is, you know, the cornerstone of ensuring that these approaches are lasting and are benefiting the people that we really want to see, um, you know, protected in, as climate change continues to affect uh, the world. And so when it comes to the carbon um, space, uh, CI has been working in the blue carbon area for about a decade now. So we have really been focused in previous years on building up the science uh, to Liz's point on, you know, what's needed, how does the science um, questions that need to be answered uh, apply to both the potential carbon market value, but also for policy um, issues related to nationally determined contributions and, and other issues um, like that. So we've been focused on that. And then in, we helped with um, the development of the blue carbon conservation methodology through VERA. And then uh, through that process, we um, implemented, we were the first to implement it in our project in Cispata, Colombia, which was very, very exciting for, for us. Um, we're very proud of that project. Um, you know, it's about 7,800 hectares of mangrove conservation. We're working with local communities. There's about 12,000 people that we think either direct or indirectly will benefit from the project. Um, you know, it should produce about a million credits over 30 years. So it is a relatively small project, but um, from that, carbon revenue, we are able to um, transparently say that about 90% of that finance is going back into the project in the form of keeping the project going and sustainable as well as other community benefits. And we're really excited and proud of that number. Um, 
you know, but that doesn't even include all the other benefits that are being generated by the project, including um, a lot of capacity building for data collection, you know, capacity building around what does it mean to enter into the carbon market, which is something that we really feel like communities need to have a very strong understanding of what that means and how to utilize that to the best of, you know, their benefit. And, you know, the project has been successful. It's it's had already one issuance of credits. All of those credits were sold almost immediately for above market prices, which we were excited about. Uh, we're in the process now of doing our monitoring report for our second issuance. And the Colombian government has been so impressed with the project that they've asked CI to help them replicate it in about five other locations all around the country. And that's exactly what we want. You know, we want these projects to be, you know, inspiring pilots that then, you know, scale to national scale programs. And I think that's something that we're seeing, you know, really happen. And that's really exciting for us. You know, I think when we look at the lessons learned from that project, um, you know, it sounds great now that it's done and we have credits, but that was a lot of work <laughs> that went into doing that. It was a lot of time, you know, really intentionally getting those relationships and building that trust. And that's something that you just can't cut corners on and you can't speed that up. Um, so that's really, really critical. And I do think that the success of some of these projects, to Liz's point, we're going to see a lot more of those projects coming online, which is amazing. But at the same time, you know, I've seen a little bit of a rush to sort of, oh, this is a market now, let's run in, let's sort of secure some deals and then figure out what carbon is and how to do it properly and how to um, enter the market. And I think that's really problematic. Um, and so I had worked with Whitney on some principles and guidance, which she might mention in a minute, but I think that was really key because what we're seeing is just this big scaling of blue carbon opportunity, which is amazing. As a conservationist, you always want to work yourself out of a job. And so you want to see other people take this stuff up and, and use it, but they need to be using it properly. And we can't afford to have projects that move forward that aren't of a certain quality. And so I think that's one big lesson. You know, when you build on success, you need to ensure that that success is being done properly. I think that the other thing I've really learned is you know, trying to find more projects that we can do that have this triple bottom line of like community, biodiversity, and climate benefits are becoming somewhat harder to find. And, you know, a lot, of, there's a lot of reasons for that. It can kind of stem from enabling conditions in countries that may be hesitant to enter an international market. It could be because coastal ecosystems are more frag fragmented in a lot of cases, or, you know, the area is smaller, making the financial side a little bit harder to, to make the case for. Um, and there are many other reasons. So, you know, I think <clears throat> we're going to have to start thinking about how do you combine blue carbon finance with other sources of, of finance and sort of looking at you know, how does this combine with perhaps adaptation measures around green gray infrastructure? How does blue carbon benefit things like um, sustainable aquaculture and, ag and agriculture, which has a big uh, carbon uh, footprint there? And so lots of opportunities around that as well. So, you know, I think as we move forward, we need to be, the lessons I'm really learning are, you know, you there's no substitute for the time it takes to build the relationship. And without that, your project's not going to be successful. You know, we really need to be building a community of practice so that 
you know, as people enter the space, they have a place to go to understand what it means to be high quality and how to do these right. And then when I think personally, uh, we're going to be looking a lot at restoration efforts as well as particularly around mangroves. And then, um, you know, finally, like, how do we start to bring other ecosystems up to the same place as mangroves? You know, TNC has a great project in a seagrass. I know Ben works in seagrasses a lot, but most carbon projects are mangroves. There's a lot of other blue carbon ecosystems out there, and we need to start bringing it up to the place where those projects are just as accessible as, as a mangrove project. Thank you very much indeed. Um, strikes me that one of the big things that's essential for these projects to work properly are the community benefits. And you, you, as you mentioned, can you just give us a brief summary of what sort of community benefits, or what they can, what they look like? What are the sort of community benefits that you you want to see? Yeah, so it's going to vary in every location, uh, depending, of course, on the context and the needs of the local communities. You know, I think always the one that we go to immediately, well, there's two. One is that you assume that by improving your coastal ecosystem, things like coastal fisheries and therefore food security and a healthy source of protein should, you know, if nothing else, not decrease and hopefully will increase um, that availability. And then the other thing is about flood and storm protection. These ecosystems are vital for that. And we've seen that over and over and over again in places where, these ecosystems have been destroyed and then a big storm comes through and the people that are on sort of a bare coastal front uh, suffer a lot more than those that are behind uh, this protective barrier of coastal ecosystems. Those are the main ones. But, you know, I think that there's a lot to be said for, you know, sort of the social, cultural, in some places, religious aspect of these systems. Um, you know, they're ancestral lands and waters. I think there's a lot of uh, community pride that can be taken in these systems as well. And the other thing that we're really exploring right now is the impact on women in particular. You know, we when we travel around and look at mangroves all over the world, we see time and time again, that's mostly the women that are fishing in the mangrove and they're using the um, shellfish and things that they collect you know, to feed their families, but then also to sell at local markets. And so the impact on women from coastal uh, ecosystem conservation and restoration, we're very much interested in getting more metrics behind that to sort of make that case improve it in, in more of a scientifically robust way, because I think that's a really important benefit. Great. No, thank you very much indeed. Um, ben, uh, let me turn to you. Uh, as for our other two panelists, give us a um, two-sentence introduction to the Ocean Foundation. And I know that you're also working on a number of blue carbon projects. And I'd imagine that getting the initial uh, finance right is a, a particular challenge. So perhaps in your remarks, you could reflect on the options for funding mechanisms and when different types of funding mechanisms, different types of funding mechanisms, so it's not even easy to say, uh, when they're appropriate. Ben. All right. Well, thank you, of course, for the invitation. And good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are in the world. Uh, my name is Ben Schelk. I'm a program officer at the Ocean Foundation. Uh, the Ocean Foundation is a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., a community foundation, and our community is the ocean. Uh, we support projects, uh, organizations around the world uh, through kind of traditional community foundation services like donor advised funds, philanthropic consulting, fiscal sponsorship, but we also have a variety of core initiatives or core programs that staff run uh, at the Ocean Foundation focused on plastics, ocean acidification, ocean literacy, 
And then my initiative, uh, the Blue Resilience Initiative, which is focused on nature-based solutions for climate change mitigation and adaptation. So kind of within that portfolio, we have a lot of coastal habitat restoration projects, seagrasses, mangroves, coral reefs, salt marsh. Uh, we also work with uh, repurposing sargassum seaweed into organic compost, which is used in regenerative agriculture. So, you know, the Blue Resilience Initiative fundamentally is about more than just carbon. It's about resilience. It's about adaptation. It's about all of these different ecosystem services afforded by these habitats. Um, so not every single project within our portfolio has the end game of becoming a certified blue carbon project, but we have been very active in this space uh, since these me methodologies started coming online. And what we're really looking for is, you know, scale, right? You know, fundamentally, these projects require large areas in order to make them kind of financially um, feasible and sustainable in the long term. And one area in particular that we've identified that has a lot of promise in this respect is, is in Puerto Rico. So as, as Jen mentioned, I think building a relationship with the community, with your partner organizations, it takes time. It, it's not something that can be rushed. You can't just pick a spot on the map and say, all right, we're gonna do a blue carbon project and it's gonna come online next year. Oftentimes these take years of kind of partnership building, understanding the area, understanding what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of these projects start with pilot projects, right? You know, experiments essentially to see, you know, where, where are the interventions? Where, you know, where can these uh, interventions take place? How do, how do we approach them? How do we work with local partners? And I'm really thrilled and honored to say that we've been working with the Hobos Bay National Estuary and Research Reserve in Puerto Rico since 2018, following the impacts of hurricanes Irma Maria. And, you know, like, like I just mentioned, we started small, you know, doing some small scale seagrass uh, restoration work, small scale mangrove restoration work, kind of building, you know, our relationship with our partners, with the D Department of Natural Environmental Resources in Puerto Rico, and really kind of cultivating a community of practice, you know, doing workshops, trainings, uh, exposing our partners to, to some of these methodologies and some of the potential benefits. And after, you know, about four years working there, we are now about to embark on our largest restoration project to date. It's roughly 700 acres of mangrove restoration, um, not nearly as large as, you know, some of the other projects that have been mentioned here, but nonetheless, I think symbolic and important because it would be one of the largest mangrove restoration projects in the United States. And if, if we can pull it off, the first certified mangrove blue carbon project in the United States. Uh, what's really exciting about this project is we're, we're taking approaches that allow us to really kind of reduce costs and kind of maximize benefits, right? So with, with restoration work, it's sometimes difficult to find areas that are, are really appropriate for, for interventions. You know, you know by nature, uh, the environment is very resilient and many of these ecosystems will come back um, left, you know, if left, um, you know, uninterrupted or, or uh, unimpacted. But what we're seeing around the world are cases where, you know, human interventions, oftentimes infrastructure, roads, ports, etc., cetera, uh, change the, the hydrology, they change the environmental conditions. So in many of these systems, you know, once they, they are exposed to like an impact from a hurricane, a very strong hurricane, for instance, uh, they will naturally die, die out, but they won't really come back because the conditions in which they, they are most comfortable and, and, and happy, if you will, um, don't exist anymore. So in this, in this case in Puerto Rico, 
There's a road that was constructed right through the mangrove swamp. Uh, it cut off the flow of water. It changed the, you know, kind of erosion, erosional dynamics, the hydrology. So what we're doing first is, is really restoring those conditions, you know, dredging channels, natural channels, creating new channels, uh, clearing culverts, doing things to really restore the environmental conditions needed for this mangrove forest to regenerate. And then we're using some of that material, that, that dredge material to create essentially what are called safe sites or dispersal centers in which we will do some mangrove planting quite a bit. Thousands of mangroves will be planted as part of this project, but fundamentally we're trying to promote natural regeneration and really leverage, you know, kind of our, our small, relatively small number of planted mangroves to, to encourage, you know, natural regeneration throughout the site, which may result in millions of trees growing. So I think, you know, when we think about these large scale mangrove or, or, you know, blue carbon restoration projects, we have to really think, you know, take a step back. It's not just about planting trees or planting seagrass. It's about restoring the conditions for these systems to come back on their own. And I think from a financial perspective, that really starts to make some of the numbers work as far as certification is concerned. Uh, we are taking a, a more traditional approach as, as far as financing this project. Uh, you know, there's... There, there are a lot of interesting projects around the world that are doing kind of a pre-sale of carbon credits uh, with the assurance that th those credits will be generated. Uh, in this case, we're, we're being a little bit more cautious uh, just because this specific project is on public land. I think one of the biggest challenges with blue carbon projects is around the world, many of these ecosystems exist on public land. So in order to certify this project, we need to enter into negotiations with the government of Puerto Rico in order to enable them to engage in the voluntary carbon market, because they will ultimately own these credits. But, uh, and, and for that reason, we're being very cautious about doing any kind of pre-sale. And primarily we've just been focused on philanthropy, you know, public and private, uh, from government, from, uh, from private foundations, from corporate partners, to really pay for all these, you know, the initial upfront costs from feasibility assessments and permitting, to the blue carbon baseline assessment, which is which is needed for certification, um, and the the goal here is that once once all of this is set up, you know, once we are able to go through the process with VCS actually uh, to certify the project, the reserve itself will own these credits, and the credits will continue to finance management and monitoring in the long term, uh, and we will essentially be buying the credits off of the project that we financed up front. Uh, it's a more cautious or conservative approach, but it really reduces risks for investors. And, you know, frankly, it, it means that all of that money in the end, for carbon credits at least, will go back directly into the community to support their activities. Thanks, uh, Ben. Do you see going forwards perhaps a more traditional model being uh, introduced? Or do you think that uh, it's the public land issue is the one that means that the you know, a pre-sale on the open carbon markets might not be the, the way that would work. Yeah, well, you know, from a financing perspective, there's, there's a lot of talk about, you know, maybe even debt instruments, blue bonds, for instance, have come up quite a bit as a way to finance a lot of the carbon credits, obviously. I think it really depends on the site, the project, the partners, you know, there are a lot of different aspects here that are important to consider. Uh, for this one, I think, we are trying to kind of pave a path, right? You know, open up an opportunity for other projects throughout Puerto Rico to do the same thing, 
to certify on public land. And for that reason, you know, we're, we're being very cautious because we don't know for sure at this point whether we can actually do that, right? Um, and, you know, in the United States, at least, it's really a state-by-state state kind of process. You know, what the Seagrass Project by the Nature Conservancy was mentioned earlier in Virginia, they had to go through the same steps, essentially, for the Virginia DEQ to, to essentially kind of manage or own those credits and engage in the voluntary market. So I think in the United States, we will have to take this state-by-state, state, uh, you know, coastal states, uh, kind of creating that framework to allow this to happen before we start kind of experimenting with, um, you know, more high finance kind of uh, financing approaches, because we have to reduce that risk. We have to create, create essentially a, a framework to do this, which will allow others to kind of replicate that. Um, you know, it's different around the world, really. But, you know, I think in many countries, we'll, you'll have to go through the same process, essentially, in some in some form or another, you know, either from a legislative or, or regular uh, regulatory perspective, you know, create that that ability essentially to certify these projects on public land, so then others can kind of take more novel sources of financing and really scale up the work. Great, Ben. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Whitney. Let me turn to you now. Thank you very much indeed for your patience. Um, give us a bit of brief uh, context to Salesforce, and I'd be interested to hear. Um, from your perspective, uh, what it is that uh, Salesforce uh, wants from the emerging blue carbon market? Whitney. Happy to. Um, and I want to thank everyone. Thank you for having me here um, on this panel. And thank you also to the panelists. I always learn so much from you. Um, so Salesforce is a large technology company. Um, we are a customer relationship management company um, at, in our core um, originate, originally, um, but we've been thinking a lot about our carbon relationship. And um, the reason that we're thinking about this is because we're recognizing that the world is facing three major crises, the climate crisis, as well as biodiversity loss, as well as social injustice. And these major crises cannot be solved in silos. They need to be solved through systems-based approach. So what, what you asked, what, what are we looking for in this work? That's one of the reasons why we're really interested in blue carbon, because the work that we do with respect to our carbon relationship, as well as with respect to sustainability as a company and leveraging our business as a platform for change is kind of the point of view that we take um, in this work, is that we're looking to see outcomes for people and for biodiversity and for climate. And blue carbon is one of those solutions that can deliver in all three of those areas. Um, and in that journey, just a little bit more background on our approach is that car we also you know, hold very, very closely the idea that carbon credits are not an alternative to reducing carbon emissions. So that's the first step. Um, and the, the one big piece of that is the work that my colleagues do in reducing our carbon emissions, but also our work in advocacy and policy. And so I just think that that's really important to mention is that we won't be able to reduce emissions entirely only through business decisions. We really need to influence the policy that is setting the stage um, and, and influence that policy in order to decarbonize the grid, in order to protect and restore nature at scale. 
and in order to transform our economy in a just and equitable manner. So I think you know that that's the the big picture in terms of our approach to these major crises, and um, and one of the key first steps that we take. But we also see carbon credits as a last but not later uh, methodology to drive important. Um, sources of revenue towards ecosystem restoration and conservation. And so this is then why we concurrently invest in high quality carbon credits. And one of the pieces that I'm responsible for then as the Director of Ocean Sustainability at Salesforce is then partnering with my colleagues around identifying high quality blue carbon credits. And we've made a goal, we set a goal um, to procure 1 million tons of high quality blue carbon credits, which is not necessarily an easy task, you know, over a couple of years, we gave ourselves some time, but it's not an easy task because the supply is low. As Liz was mentioning, the supply has been low and is starting to grow. (laughs) So that though, that goal though, is, is what gives us then some really great traction to then partner with some of the folks on this call, in fact, as well as others to help grow that supply. And the first step in that equation is what is high quality? <laughs> and so Jen mentioned uh, some of the collaborative work that we've been, we did this past year on really tackling that question of what is high quality. And um, so I'm happy to unpack that a little bit. Um, Salesforce partnered with Conservation International, the Nature Conservancy, Ocean Risk and Resilience Action Alliance, ORA, and the World Economic Forum Friends of Ocean Action and with Meridian Institute uh, to, to sponsor and support a stakeholder engagement process and really put the question out to this community of practice to define high quality. And, um, and so we ran this, this open and collaborative process over this past year and then consolidated and synthesized the inputs and delivered at COP27 in Egypt um, the final output which is high quality blue carbon principles and guidance. And um, we can drop the the link into the chat um, at some point. But when you look at this, you should see that a lot of it feels familiar. So some of the principles that came out of that are to safeguard nature, empower people, employ best information and carbon accounting principles, operate contextually and locally. That was one of the pieces that Jen brought up um about being locally specific and then mobilizing high integrity capital so that ties back into that idea of um ensuring that we're reducing emissions while we're also leveraging the carbon credit um pathway and um those should sound familiar because we really wanted to make sure that it was consistent with growing guidance and carbon markets overall and then these principles and guidance then articulate, the guidance itself articulates what these principles mean in the context of blue carbon. Um, And let's see, there was another point that I wanted to make on this. Um, Oh, that we're already using them. So I wanted to just share like my, our own story that we're trying to then identify high quality blue carbon principle or high quality blue carbon projects. And this guidance, guidance then then presents a framework and really also a tool to open dialogue, to have an open dialogue with project developers around developing a shared vision for high quality. Um, and so, so I encourage you to check them out and, um, and, and see how they might be useful to you in your own journey. Um, and the last piece that I want to share in terms of the work that we're doing to try and really see outcomes for people, biodiversity and climate and through the blue carbon markets is that 
this pain point of there being, and I think this has come up already on the call, there being a lot of opportunity, but this need then for different types of capital to help projects bridge the valley of death and projects bring the carbon credits to market. And so that's another piece of my work where um, I'll partner then with our philanthropy team. We have a, um, a, a fund for climate justice and ecosystem restoration. And this is a hundred million dollar fund that we established um, uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, for this $100 million for this decade. And some of those funds we've actually deployed to four uh, early stage projects to help them get some of that early work done and help them de-risk their projects so that they can then seek other types of capital. Some of the things that Ben was talking about, get that de-risking work done, build out their business plan, and then they can seek um, diverse types of capital. So, and one of those projects is actually um, the project Ben mentioned in Puerto Rico. So um, that's also another way in which to engage and drive impact is if you have access to those philanthropic funds or different types of capital like that, you can then patient capital, essentially, you can then um, help to unlock and bring more of these projects um, to fruition. Um, So yeah, I'll I'll leave it at that. But those were some of the key, key elements that I wanted to share with you in terms of what we're doing to try and see those outcomes. Great. Thank you very, very much indeed. And thank you to all our panel for their opening remarks. I've been enjoying following the other webinar that's happening right now on the Q&A. Some really great interactions. So thank you very much to everybody who's engaging over there. And we now try to um, bring in questions from our audience and put them to the, to the panel as we go. Some of the ones that have been answered already, um, I do want to bring in some of those points and some of the ones that have yet to be, uh, to be answered. So, um, Everyone, or the number one question uh, in terms of its likes is uh, looking at seaweed. Um, now, what I'm going to do, panel, I'm going to try and put a question just to just one of you uh, in the interest of getting through as many as we can. If you do want to come in on a question I've not put to you, just raise your, use the raise hand function and I will turn to you. Okay. Um, seaweed. Uh, what are the barriers to including seaweed, particularly farm seaweed within the blue carbon market? Now, Jane, I believe it was you that mentioned seaweed first. Do you want to turn to that? What are the barriers to feeding seaweed uh, in the blue carbon market? Um, yeah, I think I think Liz might have uh, talked about it. Also, I think that the um, right now with the science, you know, there's a lot of new science that's coming, and so I don't think it will be long before seaweed and uh, stuff has entered into the market. You know, developing that method is is the number one thing. What I'm finding right now, so I lead a um, blue carbon working group looking at seaweed and kelp and kelp farming in particular. And one of the things that we are trying to do is sort of figure out, you know, what are the fluxes that you have to measure? And then how would you go about doing that? And you know, one thing that we're seeing is we do think that seaweed and seaweed farming will have a climate mitigation benefit. It might not be in all situations because a lot of it's going to depend on ocean dynamics and, you know, how close you are to like a deeper sea environment or if you're in a fjord or something like that. So all of that needs to be discussed. And so I don't think it will be, you have a seaweed farm, it's automatically going to be able to generate credits. I think, you know, I think it will depend. Um, So that's something to keep in mind. I also think though, that what we have to really look at is how big does the seaweed farm need to be to generate enough credits from the non-harvested component? 
And does that fundamentally change the rest of the ecosystem in that area because it has to be so large? So that's a question. And then the, the last thing though is, you know, I think seaweed has enormous potential as a greenhouse gas mitigation strategy as alternative products and ingredients in more carbon heavy footprint ingredients. And so I think that is probably, I think the place where it's going to have the most value, but I do think that, you know, in some locations, yeah, I think carbon crediting in the sense of you have a plant and the plant breaks off the leaves and the leaves go somewhere or something, um, will have potential in some places. And I think now we just need to get the methodology in place such that we can allow those opportunities to, to get some finance. Um, how big of a piece of the pie that's going to be, I, I'm not sure. Um, and we're, we're trying to figure that out. Thank you. Um, thank you very much indeed. Um, ben, did you want to come in? So I wrote your, your, raise your hand there. Did you, did you want to come in? No. Okay, good. Thank no, you. No, just reading uh, Liz, all these, these questions. Great questions. In the, in they the have some great questions. <laughs> Try to get through as many of them as we can. Liz, uh, quite a straightforward question. What's the timeline for approval of a new blue carbon methodology at Vera? And give the answer as briefly as you can while still answering the question, please. Yeah, I think it's hard to predict the timeline for a methodology if there is already robust science and a very experienced developer putting forward a concept. It usually takes about 18 months. Some of the blue carbon methodologies, because of the complexity, can take a little bit longer, but I'll say 18 to 24 months would be my estimate, assuming conditions are right. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Great question here, um, uh, which I'd like to put to Ben, actually. Um, how do the panelists organisations overcome the challenge of the oceans being connected systems, the impacts can be distributed and diluted? Great question. Ben, how do you overcome mm. that, that problem? Well, challenge? Uh, you know, I, I will say, you know, a lot of the degradation of coastal ecosystems results from things that, you know, people are doing, right? Um, there's, there are a lot of issues with nutrient and sediment pollution. And, you know, th I think these are some of the key drivers behind degradation. Um, you know, thinking like Florida, for instance, we've all seen the, the terrible, you know, kind of articles about the manatees dying in, um, in the Indian R River Lagoon, for instance, uh, and because they're running out of their food source, you know, seagrasses, essentially. But there are a lot of challenges, you know, working in a place like Florida or, or, or really around the world where you're facing huge water quality issues. And it, it begs the question whether or not restoration is really appropriate until you, until you actually address some of these underlying stressors, right? So I, you know, just getting back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, kind of large scale approaches is oftentimes it's not just going in there and planting seagrasses and mangroves. It's, it's actually looking at the water quality issues that exist, the hydrology. And you need, a lot of times that means going upstream, right? You know, going up a watershed, looking at, you know, community, uh, looking at agriculture, best management practices. Uh, we just got to stop pumping so much bad stuff in the water. Um, and that will, <laughs> that's half the battle here. So, you know, thinking about the interconnectedness of the, the ocean, you know, some of the, I think some of the best sites around the world that are primed for restoration or conservation, um, you also need to look at the, you know, the surrounding municipalities and, and agricultural activities that are taking place there in order to address some of those underlying, you know, stressors, these water quality issues. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Um, we did have a question about um, 
whether blue carbon projects must be restorative in nature. And I think that's been answered already by Jen. The answer is no, they don't have to be. Um, but like some other forest red plus projects, don't necessarily have to be restorative uh, in nature. There are other ways of, of accounting for verified emissions reductions. Um, but I would actually want to, want to put that point to you, Whitney, when you are looking and seeking out your, your high quality um, uh, blue carbon credits that you mentioned, What's your view on the restorative versus conservation point? And, and do you go in any particular direction? Are you, you, are you able to see that, in fact, you know, both sides of that? That's a very good question. I know that it's um, hotly debated in the carbon space. Um, Salesforce, we believe that we cannot afford to lose more nature. Uh, they, a intact ecosystem is far more valuable than a restored ecosystem because of the millennia over which it's been building up and functioning and the complexity that's been established over so much time. So it's really critical that we halt the loss of nature now. So that's the approach that we take is that we need to both restore and halt nature loss. Ownership of carbon credits, uh, also a, a big issue. Um, the question is, how does the ownership of carbon credits and the benefit sharing mechanism decided, decided for projects um, in common lands and oceans? How does that ownership structure work? Um, ben, I guess this is one for you. When you have, you mentioned about the, you know, the, the having the, in the, you know, common lands and publicly owned lands. How do you get around the challenges inevitably then around the ownership of the resulting credits? Well, to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure yet because we haven't done it. Uh, I think this is a, a huge challenge for a lot of different projects coming online now. Um, you know, Vera might be able to speak to this more, but, you know, in the process of certifying a project or validating a project, you have to kind of come up with that that structure, essentially. How, how are benefits going to be shared? Who owns the credits, right? And in the case of public lands, a public entity will own it, or you know, maybe a municipality or an agency, you know, a government agency. Uh, many of them don't have the ability right now to engage in the carbon market due to statute, you know, lack of statute or, or you know, kind of regulatory um, uh, nebulousness uh, around this issue. So, you know, I think that's the first the first step here for these public lands projects is kind of identifying that pathway, which we're in the process of doing right now in Puerto Rico. This has been done in Virginia, um, you know, by the Nature Conservancy. But, you know, looking globally, I'm not, it's it's really specific to that, you know, that country, um, its legal structure, um, you know, how natural resources are treated, especially these coastal ones, right, which almost in, in many cases are owned by uh, the public, essentially. So, you know, with us, we're, we're, what we're really looking for is a way to support this reserve, you know, to support the National Estuarine Research Reserve, uh, which is is federal, but nonetheless, you know, really needs resources to do to do the science, the great science and, and kind of uh, community engagement work that they're doing. So, you know, the goal here is essentially for those credits to be owned by the, the DNER in Puerto Rico, and then they will be able to sell them to us, to others, you know, and then that money will flow back into the reserve to support their staff, to support equipment, to support their activities. Uh, and I'm, I'm going for 100%, you know, going right back to them, essentially. Um, but it, it really depends. I don't know if, if Vera has anything else to, to say about that, if, if Liz has any experience or has seen how other uh, projects are, are kind of set up in that respect. 
Yeah, no, so I think that, oh, sorry. Very, but you know, very briefly, I want to come on to other questions, but yeah, very briefly. Yeah, just going to say to Ben's point, it is very context specific because each country tends to have a different structure for how they handle their carbon resources in marine and coastal areas. But we're finding that, you know, as new as these methodologies are, many entities are catching up to the need to be able to define some sort of structure that can basically give those credits from the government to some sort of community group or other. And in that way, we are starting to see these projects get figured out. And over 2023, we're actually going to work with the law firm to delve into some questions that we have around ownership of credits in coastal and marine areas. Thanks very much, Liz. Um, I'd like to put a question to you. We've had a few, certainly, fair to say, a few comments on the Q&A, reflecting some of the challenges that have been around the carbon markets, the sort of the the um, concerns about the rigorous approach that, uh, that you mentioned, Liz, in your opening remarks. So um, how do you go about ensuring and that any um, uh, projects or approaches that are not credible, how do you root them out? How do you identify them and then root them out um, and uh, you know, ensure that the concerns that are being reflected in some of our questions are met and addressed? Yeah, well, any project goes through a lot of checks and balances before you get to the stage of actually issuing any credit. So there is a review by Vera staff. There, we're starting up um, site visits by Vera staff to projects as well, which is something that we hit pause on during COVID. But now that things are more or less back to normal, we're starting to do that again as well. We also have this third-party independent body the VVBs that go and they do both a desk and a field audit of a project. So with all of these actors at play verifying a project, you tend to find the issues with the project. For example, if the project developer didn't do a sufficient job of engaging with the community, that becomes very apparent very quickly when you actually go and you visit the project site. So in that way, we have these checks and balances and we're able to prevent projects that aren't valid from moving forward. Okay, thank you. Um, Question about, um, we, we referred earlier to blue bonds, and we get a number of questions looking at what sort of income schemes are, income streams rather, are necessary to underpin the issue of blue bonds um, at investment grade and scale. Um, ben, did you, did you mention blue bonds before? I mean, what sort of income streams are necessary to guarantee or to, to underpin the issue of blue bonds, do you, do you think? Um, or do you, yeah, you yeah this, is a, this is a tough question, but I... You know, I think folks that have been looking at this are looking at it more from, um, you know, the carbon essentially will pay back the bond, right? You know, so if you have uh, a certain projection around the number of credits that you're going to be generating, uh, theoretically, you know, the bond could be paid back over the long term, you know, let's say 15, 20 years uh, via the sale of carbon credits. So the investors will have some type of return. Um I think we need to be cautious, though, you know, especially with debt instruments, when we're thinking about, you know, working in some of these kind of developing nations around the world, you know, selling bonds essentially might get people into trouble, right? You know, if, if there's no, you know, if, if a project has some kind of issue uh, throughout its life cycle, you know, maybe the projections were not uh, accurate, you know, up front as far as the amount of carbon, you know, that would be sequestered and stored through the project. And so we need to be very cautious uh, when approaching these kind of these new novel instruments, if you will. But I think that they, they have huge opportunity, especially for Red Plus projects, you know, to kind of finance some of these upfront activities, you know, kind of develop the benefit sharing mechanism and um, system 
you know, really work with communities up front with that money from that bond sale and then eventually pay it back, you know, through kind of a red plus scheme. But it's it's all just kind of in discussion right now. I, I haven't seen anyone actually do it. You know, the only blue bonds that exist are, are debt swaps, essentially, uh, at this time. Okay, um, thank you very much indeed. Another popular question um, for the recent question is, how will ocean acidification affect blue carbon? Um, Jane, do you any any thoughts on that? Another great question. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I mean, they're obviously connected, right? So you have healthy seagrass ecosystems, particularly you're going to be removing more CO2 from the water column. That's going to, you know, decrease ocean acidification. You know, I think as ocean acidification and temperature continue to go up, we're going to start to see harm being done to more than just the coral reefs and the calcifying organisms. It's going to start really playing out at a much broader scale. So, you know, I think it's one is a solution to the other. And so I think that, you know, I've seen a lot of comments about this connectivity between, you know, what's happening on land, what's happening in the water, you know, same thing. It's not just a mangrove project, it's a seagrass project that should be in conjunction with a kelp or a coral project. So I think all of these things could be acting together. And I think that that's going to be one of the benefits of, of this. But, you know, if the question is more related to like chemically, how are these things connected, you know, then obviously seagrasses um, in particular around coral reefs reduce, have a localized impact on ocean acidification. So the more uh, blue carbon ecosystems that you have out there in the world that are healthy, you know, locally, at least that should have a benefit on ocean acidification. Thank you very much indeed. Um, okay, I'm conscious of time. Um, perhaps we can then turn um, to uh, back to the panel and I'm very keen try and sum up what we've, um, what we've uh, covered over the past hour. What indeed are your thoughts on what we've, what we've talked about? What are the key things that have emerged for you, for, for you from, from the discussions, from the discussions with our audience and with each other? Um, Wendy, perhaps you can go first. Um, absolutely. So um, I think one of the I mean, I, I really appreciated one of the comments Liz shared at the at the top of the call, which was that about the importance of the scientific rigor that then needs to then, you know, be backing the activity and the methodology itself. So it was really helpful, I think, Liz, to, you know, the way you outlined that. And um, so the approach that are some of the key takeaways that that I'm coming away from this conversation and kind of using as a guide as we we look for our investments are the importance of that scientific rigor and the and the partnerships that we can have with um, folks like like those on this call, so that we can act in the best way for communities and for um, for nature. And then the the other key takeaways that I want to leave everyone with is the importance of first reducing your carbon emissions, and then the transformative impact that patient capital can have in catalyzing this blue carbon space. Um, as, as investors and as buyers, we can also drive for high quality um, in those conversations and in those partnerships with project developers. So asking for transparency, I, that that is not one, I think, one theme that's come up in a big way yet in this conversation, but demanding and, and pushing for further transparency is uh, really important for all the various stakeholders who are involved. Um, 
and transparency around the carbon accounting, as well as transparency around the financials. So I think that's a really important key theme to take away. Um, and also the long-term nature of these relationships uh, that as an investor, one is really entering into a long-term relationship with the project developer, with the community and with the ecosystem itself. Um, and you know, recognizing that the community has this relationship with this ecosystem and, um, you know, they, they only have this one that's there, you know, and it's a big part of their lives. And it's in its in its per, a permeable space between people and nature. And we really need to honor that. Um, so so those are some of the key pieces. And finally, if you want to, you know, if you're looking for tools in order to kind of put that into practice, I'm hopeful that the principles and guidance can be helpful um, as a high level steering and um, and I'm actually going to drop the 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 link in here, and you can either adopt it on your own and use it as you're looking for projects, and you can also demonstrate leadership by signing up as an early adopter. And um, so this link will show you how to do that. So those are some of the key Thank like. You. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think the chat is uh, available for everybody, uh, but we will share that link. If you can make sure we have that link, we will share it with everybody when we send uh, send out the recording. Um, thanks, Whitney. Liz, if I turn to you now, just to build on the point around transparency, that's something again that's come up on the in the questions. What does VERA require in terms of uh, transparency uh, for when you're certifying projects, uh, and particularly in terms of where? You know, where the, the distribution of the revenue goes. What kind of transparency levels do you require? Yeah, so our registry includes all project documentation. It can be kind of hard to dig in there, but that information is captured transparently. The VCS doesn't require that that revenue is shared with the local community, but we are finding that the most successful projects do in fact do that. And that's something that is built upon within our CCB. Um, something else I do want to mention, we at Vera, we're constantly going through a process of continuous improvement and as adaptive as the management needs to be for these blue carbon systems. And so another thing we're working on over the course of 2023 is actually updating our safeguards. Um, this includes our environmental and social safeguards so that they reflect what needs to be done within these projects. And I do think that we'll end up taking a lot of what's captured in the high quality blue carbon principles and guidance and making sure that that's included in our safeguards. Thanks. Thank you, Liz. Um, Jane, uh, what are you trying to taking away then from the last hour? Briefly, if you will, I'm conscious that our hour now is almost up. Sure. Um, you know, I think this is something I've talked a lot to Whitney about also in the development of the principles and guidance is sort of this balance between, you know, what is the absolute most optimum thing versus what is practical and how do we get more projects onto the market? And I've been talking about that a lot in the questions in the chat. Nature is messy. It's a living thing that breathes and moves and we can only control it so much, but these projects are so important. You know, what is the level of science that's needed? You always want that science to be as high quality as as possible, but there has to be a path. And that's something Whitney and I are really interested in developing together is what is that path to get you from here to here? And just because you're here doesn't mean you should be completely blocked out of this market and not be able to have access to anything. Like that's just going to pe get people that are behind, they're just going to stay behind. And so building that path. And I think that's something that I'm seeing a lot in the chat is, you know, what's the base level of knowledge? 
but I would love to see that your first issuance and the funding from that, there's dedicated funding to increasing your science, but it doesn't mean that you can coast on averages. It doesn't mean you can coast on this. You should always be improving. And I think that's what we're seeing. And so this balance between incredibly high levels of rigor and effort that is needed versus where people are starting at and building that path. I think from one to the to the next is where is my main takeaway. Thanks, Jane. Ben, you briefly, if you would. Yeah, I'll wrap up quickly. Well, I think what's clear is that it's a very exciting time to be working in blue carbon and working in these communities. You know, the last decade was full of a lot of pilot projects, a lot of experimentation, understanding these new methodologies that are coming out. Now we're, we're, we're hitting it, you know, hitting the road with this knowledge, with all the experience that's been gained over, over, you know, a decade now. And it's really exciting time to be involved with this, but it's, it's more than just about carbon. You know, it's about all of these other kind of co-benefits that are really important to price into this model. So I think as, as an investor, or as a company, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, supporting a project like this, don't go into it just about the carbon. Think about, you know, the, the larger impact you can have and the importance of some of that patient capital that Whitney had mentioned. These, it's absolutely critical to get these things off the ground. And I want to see a lot more projects around the world, you know, kind of overcoming these initial obstacles and barriers. And so we can really see the, the potential of this, of this emerging new sector. Thank you very much indeed. Well, we are out of time, so we'll have to draw things to a close, I'm afraid. Thank you so much to our panel for uh, their time and their insight today. It's been a really interesting conversation, really interesting discussion. Um, we've had 47 questions. I can't remember 47 questions on a webinar before. So that demonstrates the level of interest. So thank you very much indeed. Do head for the Innovation Forum website for more webinars, more podcasts um, and insights along with details of what we're up to in 2023. And if you are interested in partnering with us on Blue Carbon, there's a huge amount of interest today. I'm sure we'll something we'll be doing again. Do get in touch with us. We'd we'll love, love to hear from you. But for now, I hope you found this webinar useful. I've been Ian Welsh, and thank you for joining us, and goodbye. <laughs>